Well, over the past few weeks, if you're just joining us this morning, we've been looking at various parables in the Gospels told by Jesus during his earthly ministry. Now, a parable is a, it's a fictional story used to communicate a certain truth, a certain fact. And in Jesus' case, there were stories that communicated who God is, what God is like, and what his kingdom is all about. And today we're going to look at a a parable that's known as the parable of the prodigal son. And it's a parable that many of you might be uh, familiar with. And this is a parable that Jesus shares in response to a complaint. He is responding to a specific criticism that was circulating amongst most notably the, the religious elite, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of that day. And their complaint and their criticism had to do with a specific demographic that was seeming to to grow in size as people would gather together to hear Jesus speak or to to see Jesus. And we see who this demographic is in verses 1 through 2. So Luke 15, 1 through 2. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And this word muttered is the same word that we we see in the Old Testament of Israel grumbling towards God during their time in the wilderness. In their complaint here, the the Pharisees, the complaint is that these tax collectors who are viewed as traitors, these sinners, uh, people who were perceived as being unworthy, undeserving of God's blessing, people who broke God's laws, people who were broken and imperfect, uh, they're seemingly drawn to Jesus. More and more are starting to show up, and this is bothering the religious elite. And their criticism against Jesus is that he welcomes them, and he eats with them. And this idea of welcoming isn't just like, hello, how are you, nice to see you. He doesn't just tolerate them. He's not just being nice to them, but to to welcome them means to deeply accept them, to embrace them the way that one would embrace a a dear friend. And the way that Jesus would demonstrate this acceptance is by eating with them. And to eat with somebody, first century Middle East, was a, a sacramental act. It was a way of communicating with the person and with the public that you accept this person that there is unity and solidarity, that you affirm who this person is and what they stood for. And thus you could see why the religious would be confused, why they would be bothered or even disturbed of how someone who was from God, of God, claimed to be God, how he could accept people who were broken and flawed and imperfect. So it's in response to this criticism that Jesus then launches into a series of parables. Now, the first parable, and I'm just going to summarize, is the parable of the lost sheep. Jesus says there's a shepherd who has 100 sheep, and he loses one. One wanders off, is missing. Verse 4, Jesus asks the question. He says, doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? Now, this is a rhetorical question because Jesus answers it, yes. The shepherd leaves the 99, and regardless of the terrain, regardless of the conditions, regardless of the danger, he goes out on an all-out search until he finds the one. 
And when he finds the one, he calls up all his buddies because he's so elated and he throws a party. And he has a celebration because what was once lost is now found. In the next parable, Jesus says there's a woman who has 10 coins, each coin probably being worth a, a day's worth of work. And somewhere along the way in her house, she loses that coin. And Jesus asks the question. Verse 8, doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And it's a rhetorical question because Jesus would answer, yes. She lights the lamp, and she frantically searches her house, built on stone, looking at every crack, every crevice, until she finds that coin. And when she finds that coin, she's so elated that she calls up all her gal friends, and she throws a celebration because what was once lost is now found. Now, Jesus tells these two parables to highlight a truth about his kingdom, but he's also calling out the religious leaders. You know, when my daughters were young, uh, we would do story time every once in a while. And, you know, after you kind of go through all the different books you have, you begin to make up stories. And a lot of times, because of my lack of creativity, I would begin the story with, once upon a time, there was a girl named Wamber. Right? And immediately the kids would start laughing because they'd know I'd be talking about my wife, Amber. And you see, when Jesus tells these first two parables, everybody knows exactly who he's talking about. Because who were the, the self-proclaimed shepherds of Israel? It was the Pharisees. Who perceived themselves as the keeper of the house of Israel? It was the Pharisees. And you see, Jesus is asking them, when something of value is lost, how should you respond? And then he goes into the parable of the prodigal son. Verse 11, Jesus continues. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided the property between them. Now immediately, first century Middle Eastern culture, this would have been disturbing. This would have really bothered the audience because to request for your share of the estate, what you would get when your father dies is basically to wish death upon the father. Now, technically, it wasn't illegal to ask, but relationally, it was extremely hurtful, extremely offensive. No laws had been broken, but a relationship has been deeply wounded and damaged. It's also interesting here that this son, he doesn't ask for an inheritance. Because an inheritance implies responsibility, right? A responsibility to take care of the family, a responsibility to honor the father's legacy. But the son doesn't ask for an inheritance. He asks for just his share of the property, right? This is a selfish, arrogant, entitled son who wants nothing to do with his father, nor the family. And to make such a request would bring an immense amount of shame and humiliation upon the family. So any respectable first century Middle Eastern patriarch, in order to maintain honor and dignity, there's no way he grants this request. Rather, he, he, he punishes the son. Perhaps he even drags the son to the middle of, of town and, and stones the son. But rather, this father grants the son's request divvies up the estate, two-thirds most likely to the older brother, a third to the younger brother, and he distributes it. Verse 13, it says, Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. 
After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. So the son gets his share of the property, the estate, and immediately he liquidates it. Which means in order to liquidate his property, there's probably a lot of uncles and aunties, a lot of cousins, a lot of friends, perhaps workers, employees, who had to be evicted immediately. Out onto the streets, forced to live with other family members, other friends. The fact that he sold it so quickly probably means that he sold it on the cheap, at a discount, whatever he could get. And then he takes that money, and it says he squanders it on wild living, or another definition, translation, is on extravagant living. So years of hard work, wealth that has been earned and saved, generational wealth that you know, meant security, stability for years to come for the entire family, it's all gone. It's, it's wasted, squandered. In first century Jewish custom, uh, there was a ceremony known as a kazatza. And a kazatza, which literally means to sever, to cut off. And it was a way to publicly communicate to an individual in your family, in your community, that this relationship has been broken. And the way they would do it is they would take a large clay pot and they would shatter it in front of the individual to symbolize that this relationship is permanently broken. And the reason you would do that is if an individual brought an immense amount of shame and humiliation to the family, so it was a way to shame and humiliate them back. And one scenario where you would do a kazatzat ceremony is if a Jewish son squanders his inheritance to a Gentile or to a Gentile community. So this son knows what is coming if he were to return home. That if he were to return home, there is shame and humiliation that awaits him. So even though he's about to hit rock bottom, he feels like it's, it's better to get a job feeding pigs, which was shameful in itself since pigs were defiled, it's better to get a job feeding pigs than it would be to return home. But then in verse 17, it says, When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. He says, I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. It says, when the son came to his senses, and he's not being as humble as it may sound, because when the son begins to realize that pig food is starting to look appetizing, he thinks to himself, my dad's employees, his workers, they got it better than me. And even though I might not be worthy to be a son anymore, I'm at least as good as my dad's workers as those servants, if not better. So I'm going to go home and I'm going to make a pitch. I'm not worthy to be called a son, but can you give me a job? Can you pay me a wage? Can you teach me a skill? And perhaps in his mind, thinking that once he saves up enough money, perhaps he can pay back what was lost, perhaps earn the status of being a son once again. What we see is this son recognizes that he's messed up. He sees that he has, has failed, but he doesn't fully recognize the gravity of his sin and of his decisions. 
So verse 20, it says, So he got up and went to his father. So as he's making his way home, he anticipates what's coming. And at some point, he's going to be confronted by, by members of the community, perhaps the elders of the village. He'll be interrogated. Once they find out that he's squandered all the wealth, he's probably, good chance, he's going to be cut off. He's going to be shamed. He's going to be humiliated. But perhaps there will be just enough grace for his dad to grant him one more wish. Second half of verse 20, it says, While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Right, so just as this son is making his way home and he comes into to view, the father sees him. And it says immediately he's overflowed with compassion, filled with compassion. No, no anger, no disappointment, no frustration, no desire to punish, just compassion. It says his father runs. Now the word run carries the meaning of competing in a race. This is an all-out sprint that this father is, is attempting. Now, no men of his age, no men of his stature, of his dignity, of his position ever ran. They always moved in a slow, dignified fashion. And thus, it had probably been decades since this father had last run in such a way. You see, to, to run at that age would have been viewed as shameful. It would have been viewed as humiliating. And that's why I'll never understand why Pastor Brandon does it every morning. <laughs> you see, to run then would have required this father to, to pull up to the front of his robe, to, to flash his pale, skinny legs, and to exert an inordinate amount of energy to do something his body hadn't done for, for decades. Right? So you can just imagine how awkward it would have looked at best, how it would have caused quite the scene and quite the stir. So just envision this scene for a moment. Right? The son is returning home. He's walking towards the, the community, the village, and immediately he's spotted. Right? It doesn't take long for people to see him, for word to just begin spreading him out of the community, heads sticking out of their houses, people calling, look who's back. Look who it is. Look who's finally decided to show up. You can imagine just the disdain that would begin to, to rise to the surface, the disgust that they would feel towards this son making his way home. Perhaps some of the elders are starting to make their way out to confront him to stop him, to potentially shame him for what, for what he had done. But just as they're making their way towards him, all of a sudden they are blinded, distracted by something they have never seen before nor something they would ever want to see again. And that is this father sprinting towards his son. And you see, what this father is running. Not only because he wants to get to his son in a hurry, because he, but also because he is protecting the son. He is shielding his son from the shame and humiliation coming his way 
by taking on the shame and the humiliation himself so his son wouldn't. The father embraces the son, kisses him all over the face. And in this moment, I believe that this is the first time that this son begins to understand how much his father loves him. In this moment, he sees that his love is unwavering and unconditional, that this father is filled with compassion and with grace. You know, as we'll see, that the more that this son begins to understand the magnitude of his failure, the more he begins to, to understand the magnitude of his father's love. The more this son begins to, to, to understand the depth of his sin and brokenness, the more he begins to understand the depth of his father's grace. And we see this in, in, the, in his response. Verse 21, it says, The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Period. You see that next part where he asks for a job? where he asks for a wage, where he thinks that he could somehow earn and pay back what was lost and regain a status, it's out the window. Because in this moment, what this son recognizes is that it wasn't just about the money or the wealth or the property, but it was about the relationship that he had hurt. That in light of his father's love, he now sees how much he had wounded and hurt his father. And thus he realizes that there's nothing he could do to pay back what was lost. There's nothing he could do to fix what was broken. There's nothing he could do to restore what was damaged. So he says, I am no longer worthy to be called your son, period. And perhaps this is the first time in this son's life that he actually trusts his father. That he entrusts his well-being, he entrusts his future, he entrusts his livelihood into the hands of the father. And we have to remember at this point, this son has no idea what the father's going to do. He has no idea what the father will suggest, what he will recommend, what he will decide. But the son has seen just enough of this father's love, of his grace, of his compassion, that he believes and knows that whatever the father decides... It's going to be good, and it's going to be gracious. Verse 22 says, But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. So this father says, put the best robe on him. In other words, put my son in my best attire. So that when everybody sees my son wearing my robe, wearing my ring, they're going to know that the relationship has been restored and that they are going to see him the way they see me. They're going to treat him the way they treat me. They're going to honor and love him the way they honor and love me. He says, kill the fattened calf, right? Let's celebrate well, because this is as good as any reason to celebrate. That this is a celebration, not just for the son, but for the father, who is filled 
with joy that what was once lost is now found. Now, up until this point in the parable, we have yet to hear about this older brother. And just, the, just because Jesus hasn't mentioned the older brother doesn't mean that this first century Middle Eastern audience hasn't been thinking about the older brother. Right? Jesus begins the parable. There's a father with two sons. The younger son asked for his share of the estate. And it would have been mind-boggling for those listening why they have yet to hear from this older brother. When my daughters were four and two, I took them to a Chick-fil-A once for lunch. I had to play in the play area to eat, just to, to hang out with them. And after we were finished, we were you know, making our way back to the car, and we, we got out the doors, and, and my hands were kind of full. You know, I had their leftovers, I had you know, their toys, I had some of the, the you know, supplies that we were carrying. So I just said to them, stay right here. I'm just going to go to the car and put the stuff away. Then I'll, then I'll come in and get you. So I made my way to the car. I'm putting the stuff away in the trunk. And then I turn back, and I see Katie, the two-year-old, booking it to the street. Now, it wasn't the main street, but it was kind of like the main driveway in a busy shopping center. And she makes her way onto the street. A woman stops her car, and she's yelling out the window, baby in the street, baby in the street. You know, so I, I, I sprint over, I, I pick up Katie, and I, and I make our way back, and, and I kind of just, like, motion to Carly, like, Carly, you know, I know she was just four at the time, but it's like, well, what are you doing? Right? In other words, like, you're the older sister you should have been caring for Katie. See, in Jesus' first parable, he says there is a sheep that's gone missing, and there is an all-out search for that sheep until it's found. In the second parable, he says there's a coin that's been missing, and there's an all-out frantic search for that coin. But here in this parable, a brother, a son, wanders off, is lost, it's rock bottom, but there is no search. There is no attempt to, to mediate, to intervene. There is no pursuit. There is no attempt to find or attempt to rescue. And there is one person in the family, there's one person in the community who should have been searching for this brother. It should have been the oldest son. Right? The oldest son is the extension of the father. The oldest son is meant to protect the family, prioritize the family, preserve the family. Yet this son up until this point does nothing. Verse 25 says, Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing, so he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in, so his father went out and pleaded with him. You know, whenever a family would throw a celebration, a festival, invite family, friends over, it was the expectation of the oldest son to be at the party, in his party attire, welcoming and greeting the guest. But the expectation wasn't that he just welcomed them, but actually the oldest son would oftentimes function as the head waiter, overseeing the distribution of the food and drink, making sure everyone was taken care of, because that was a way of the family showing and communicating to its guests, you are so special that even our oldest son 
is here to serve you. But this son finds out about this party and he refuses to enter. He, he's angry. He is furious. Now, everybody in this town, in this community, is at this celebration. Right? There's enough of them to eat a whole cow, so it means there's a lot. Except the one person who really needed to be at this party. Everybody can see who's not at the party. The father catches wind of this, goes outside, and everyone is thinking the honorable, respectful thing to do when your son is bringing shame and humiliation upon a family would be to punish the son, to perhaps drag him out, stone the son, but rather he pleads. He virtually begs, which no respectable, honorable father would ever do, except this one. Verse 29 says, But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And what we see is at the end of the day, this older brother, this oldest son, he doesn't understand the heart of the father. He doesn't understand the depth of his father's love. That in his view, this is a love that still needs to be earned. It needs to be worked for. And because it needs to be earned, there's no way that his younger brother deserves a fattened calf when he's yet to, to even get a goat. And this is how Jesus ends this parable. He leaves it open-ended. There's no conclusion. There's no resolution as to what this older brother does because this is a question that Jesus is asking the Pharisees in response to their criticism. And the question he's asking them is, how should this older brother respond? In other words, how should you respond? And it's a rhetorical question because what Jesus is telling the Pharisees, those who are religious, he says, you out of all people, you who claim to know the Father, you who claim to have a relationship with him, you who claim to understand him, you of all people should not only be welcoming and accepting these broken and imperfect people, but you should be out there devoting your life, searching for these people. Letting them know that regardless of what mistakes they've made, regardless of what flaws or what brokenness, they got a father who's waiting for them, filled with compassion and grace, whose love for them is unwavering and unconditional. And what Jesus is communicating to those tax collectors and to those sinners who's standing there in his midst, what he desires to communicate to each and every one of us today is that we have a heavenly father who knows our mistakes, who knows our sins, who knows our failures, but who is filled with compassion, whose love for us is unwavering and unconditional. Right? That he is a God 
who would send his son Jesus to search for us, to find us. A son who would demonstrate the heart of the Father, a son who would be our good older brother, enduring the, the shame and the wrath that we deserve, but taking it upon himself, dying on a cross, paying for our sins. Because of that, there's, there is no sin. There is no mistake. There is no failure. There is no flaw. There is no struggle that could ever get in the way of how much he loves us. This is the kind of love that we are invited to receive. The kind of love that we're invited to experience every moment of every day. And it's the kind of love that we are called to embody to one another and to those around us. So as we close our time this morning, as we move back into a time of praise and worship, let us continue to do just that, to consider the love that God has for each and every one of us. And if you're thinking to yourself, like, I, already, I know this love, I, I love this love, and by all means, let's rejoice, and let's praise, and let's worship as a response. But perhaps some of us are still just wrestling, just unsure of whether God could actually accept or love someone like us. Maybe there are certain decisions, certain sins, certain actions in the past where you just think to yourself, there's no way that God will ever get past that, that he could ever accept me for, for those things. And if that's where you're at this morning, then let's continue just to ask, God, help me. Help me to experience more of your love. You be the one to convince me that you are filled with compassion and grace, that your love is unwavering and unconditional. Will you pray with me?